Topic of our discourse certainly this evening is taking the first few steps, and namely on the path. And what we shall do is certainly during this certain discourse, first of all, let's say a few words about balanced Tottenham practice. That's going to be a leftover from uh, this morning. And Tottenham then having dealt with that aspect, we shall go on uh, to look at Tottenham some uh, aspects of the practice that are uh, very much fundamental. Now, such as the restraint of uh, the senses, uh, such as uh, slowing down one's activities, such uh, as intensity of uh, the practice, and such uh, then uh, furthermore um, obstacles that one that might be creating for you know, one's own you know, practice and how to you know, deal you know, with difficulties at the you know, outset of a retreat. Now all of Futner these and Satna then very important will be a section on uh, attitude you know, towards Satna practice. All of Futna these aspects do matter quite Satna a lot and uh, will um, uh, help if one does Satna respect them, if one does implement them, it will help a retreat and, and to well, easily take uh, you know, those first few steps and uh, uh, later you know, steps. Now, the Buddha himself had a direct certain experience of Fatna living in uh, extremes. Think of Fatna, his uh, uh, princely life at Satna Kapilawatu, enjoying the luxury of Fatna, uh, of Fatna being a prince, and Satna from that, going from that into Renounce or, or from that renouncing uh, the royal uh, life and Satna then uh, doing just Satna the opposite and practice engaging in ascetic practices for uh, several years, in uh, more specifically six years. And so uh, this form. Both of these forms of extremist practice yielded great benefits. What do you think? Yes or no? Uh, Jill? In the end, not. No. <laughs> In the end, after uh, six years of uh, 
ascetic curtain practices the buddha to be was nowhere nowhere closer to finding answers to questions he had already earlier on during his princely life so very fundamental questions about certain the meaning of life about certain birth and certain aging disease and certain death now what the buddha did certainly find out after having uh, having given up a life in luxury, indulgence, in you know, sense pleasures, as well as uh, ascetic practices, he then opted for what? Well, the middle way, as simple as that. And uh, that middle way, we could also uh, referred to as a form of balanced practice. And that is indeed what we as retreatants here during this certain one month retreat also need to do. There are certain basic aspects certain that we do need to respect, namely very simple things that certainly we drink enough or that there's enough intake of liquids and certainly that deliberately we do not dehydrate certain ourselves. Then, in terms of food consumption, do we go for yet another extreme? So, you will have experience in past retreats that overeating is a good recipe for for drowsiness and certainly eating too little is a good recipe for well ending up hungry <laughs> and certainly so neither of those certainly will work and thus certainly we want to um, uh, take um, or consume you know, food in moderate certain amounts, neither eating too much nor eating you know, too little. If we do not eat certain sufficiently, you know, then uh, gradually we'll run out of fitness strength. Now, connected with food certain consumption is certain another area that at times imposes certain difficulties namely when constipation sets in and certain being constipated makes it really easy to practice <laughs> not at all and certainly so 
Uh, those who have had certain, uh, such experiences will know uh, that certain, uh, the mind easily gets certain, uh, irritated, the uh, abdomen gets uh, increasingly bloated, and there's just an overall sense of uh, uh, dis-ease. So, when you find that you've been constipated for two or even more days, then please do something about this. Use natural laxatives or there are various exercises, natural exercises that one can do to address the situation. Now, in terms of sleep, Sleep is another very important area that we need to handle. We need to understand properly and also handle properly. Now, our need for sleep in the course of a retreat will always be exactly the same. Five and a half hours every night. Not really. At times, you might certainly find that you need more sleep, and other times you might certainly find that you get by with less sleep. And so the night's sleep will fluctuate over time, and certainly just uh, um, take notice of this. However, it is definitely not recommended to deliberately deprive oneself of fitness sleep or you know, to willfully practice uh, through you know, the entire night when one's practice is not up to the mark. Mindfulness practice is not something that certainly we do using willpower, but certainly this is a practice that certainly requires that we do pay closest attention to the needs of the body and the mind. What else? On occasion, there are you know, retreatants who push through excruciating levels of certain pain, and certain that is certain not necessary. When a pain is just about to become excruciating, please do take you know, the freedom to you know, to do what. To change your posture, and this you want to do you know, slowly and mindfully, you know, being fully aware of the very intention to you know, change your posture, and suddenly you know, you actually change your posture. Now, there's still 
a few other things that we should stay away from, namely to assume that in the context of Vipassana meditation, there simply thoughts should not arise in the stream of consciousness at all. And that is an impossibility. For long stretches in the Vipassana practice, thoughts do on occasion arise, sometimes even quite frequently, and then rather than trying to get rid of them, we try to simply accept a predominant certain thought or thinking process, train of thoughts as another valid object of observation. And so we focus our attention on it, we label it, we observe it, we try to know its certain nature. And then sooner or later, uh, that train of thought, of thoughts, will eventually uh, come to an end. Once uh, that's, uh, that has occurred, uh, then we uh, resume observing the rising falling movement of uh, the abdomen. There are, however, later on in the practice, when the mind has become very, very sharp, there are points or phases in the practice where a thought arises and immediately the mind is aware of it, is aware of the very beginning, the very forming of the thought and with certain good mindfulness the thought might collapse in itself. Now, the schedule that we have here is a pretty flexible schedule which will allow you to adjust the length or duration of your sessions. And so please do make good use of this. If among the retreatants here, there is one or the other person who is still relatively new to intensive satipatthana meditation practice and has difficulties sitting for the full hour, well, then that's not really a problem. You just do a little less. You do as much as you can easily handle. And over time, you will see the body it will become more and more flexible, and especially the muscles, and then it will become easier to sit longer. Now, there's no need as for us as certain Dhamma relatives to go or to get caught up in what you might certainly call uh, a competition among Dhamma relatives. 
and some competition in terms of how long is certainly another person sitting and how long uh, am I able to sit. Or you know, to imagine how advanced another you know, retreat and practice might be, and certainly uh, then you know, trying to um, you know, compete with that, trying to you know, get certain one's own practice up to the same you know, level. Um, also, to entertain high expectations about what should happen in our practice and uh, the goal that we intend to reach all of those certain things please just set aside and do just one thing namely namely what? What's that? Mindfulness, yes, that's it. Uh, just uh, be with the present moment, focus on your own practice, and that's uh, um, more than needed. And that's all that is needed. Now, as we will see in one of the later Dhamma talks on a mindful contemplation of the mind, Jitta Nupasana, this contemplation of the mind includes being mindful not only of mental states that are to our liking, that are wholesome, that are skillful, that are agreeable, but mindful contemplation of the mind also includes a mindful contemplation of unskillful mental states. Mental states that we at first might not like that much. So we try you know, to observe whatever the predominant certain mental state that comes up, whether it's certain desirable or undesirable, whether it's to our liking or not, it really doesn't certainly matter. Now, on occasion, retreatants push the mind far too hard beyond its limits into states of extreme fear, worry, guilt, self-judgment, and the like. On occasion, a retreatant might certainly even enjoy uh, such kind of uh, extreme states and go even looking for those certain states. In a situation like this, please do keep your practice as balanced as possible. Should you be experiencing 
any kind of extreme or, or extreme levels of fear, of depression, of anxiety, of elation or hyper uh, activity, excessive uh, uh, energy, then kindly inform uh, your teacher uh, without any delay uh, whatsoever. Then together uh, we can uh, discuss uh, what uh, could be uh, done. In the course of an intensive uh, Satipatthana retreat, all sorts of experiences uh, will come up and certainly it's important that certainly we handle those in an appropriate manner, uh, namely in a, in a calm and in a detached manner, observing them you know, with a relaxed and yet alert sadness state of mind. So maybe you know, this much in terms of balance certain practice. Now let us certainly move on you know, to highlight the importance of uh, uh, restraint of the senses a bit more. In the Pali scriptural language known as Indriya Samwara Nasila and uh, you know, this restraint of the senses the Buddha has uh, spoken of on many occasions. Now, to give you one Example for a lack of footnote restraint of footnote the senses. You happen to walk by some beautiful flower that is blooming, and certainly from a distance, you notice certainly some exquisite certainly scent there and you just can't uh, control yourself and you feel pulled to go closer and ever closer to uh, that certain beautiful flower and then you find yourself sniffing the scent of that certain flower and that certainly will, or that might certainly then trigger all sorts of reactions certainly in the mind. It's, the experience is likely you know, to be accompanied by what kind of a feeling? Pleasant feeling or unpleasant feeling or neutral feeling? What do you think? If it's an exquisite scent, then it will be accompanied by a pleasant feeling, sure. And uh, as human beings, what do we do not normally in regard to pleasant feelings? We hold on to them. That's it. And uh, 
So there is a certain this pleasant feeling that uh, we derive from sniffing the scent of that uh, uh, you know, flower, and certain uh, then mm, we want to prolong the pleasant feeling, and we keep you know, sniffing. If then the teacher comes and said and says, "What are you doing there? Is this the latest form of mindfulness practice?" Well, well, then you might not like it too much, and uh, uh, and so especially among new retreatants, they don't quite understand what is wrong uh, with uh, this. Now, by taking in freely taking in external sense impressions without guarding our senses will mm, cause agitation in the mind, will cause a distraction of the mind, and certainly with this it will become difficult to carefully observe a predominant object of observation. So in the case of sniffing the sense of the exquisite scent of that beautiful flower, it will be so so pleasant, so overwhelming that we want more and more and more of the same and in the process we totally forget to be mindful. Now, When we do manage to apply uh, restraint of the senses, then this certainly will lead to at least a temporary freedom from mental defilements, such as covetousness, such as ill will, and certain dejection. And the result of this is certainly the arising of a sense of ease, or happiness, or even contentment in party. Now the term here would be sukha. And so this very arising of Fatna ease is certainly said to be one of Fatna the benefits of restraint of the senses. In the Pani scriptural language, this is given as Ajatam Abhyaseka Sukham Patisam Videti. So one experiences within oneself an, um, a blameless form of happiness or ease. Now, there is likely to be a consequence 
mm, a positive certain consequence to this, namely uh, ease in you know, the body and in the mind, then prepares the ground for you know, the arising of which factor, which mental factor, who knows. Uh, the one-pointedness of mind, yes, that's correct. Ekagata uh, in the Pali scriptural language, or we can say that uh, it uh, prepares the uh, ground for you know, the arising of concentration. In praise of um, the restraint of the senses, the Buddha has certainly spoken the following verse, which is recorded in the Dhammapada as verse number 360. Good is restrained over the eye, good is restrained over the ear, good is restrained over the nose, good is restrained over the tongue. And even beyond that, good is restrained in the body, good is restrained in speech, good is restrained in thought. Restrained everywhere is good. Retreatant, who is restrained in every way, is freed from all suffering. Now, from a practical or from an experiential point of view, point of view of a beginning retreatant, this restraint of the senses, does it always come easy? Hmm? Michael, what would you say? No, it does not. So, and first, it's difficult you know, to you know, restrain you know, oneself, to control you know, one's sadness and sadness doors. One rather, or one, you know, one is, you know, the mind is still so ingrained in the habit of not you know, letting the senses or of taking sense impressions in that then having to restrain oneself then is experienced as rather unpleasant. The Buddha has given the following advice more specific advice on you know, restraint of the senses. He says, Retreatants, you should train yourselves thus. We will guard the doors of our you know, sense faculties on seeing a form with the eye. We will not grasp at the signs and certain the features or particular features. So the Pali term for science is nimitta, and this refers to you know, the coarser aspects of an object. Since if we left the eye faculty unguarded, 
unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us, we will practice the way of of its restraint. We will guard the eye faculty. We will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. And the same thing then also goes for hearing a sound with the ear and suddenly smelling an odor with the nose, etc., etc. Now, the passage Shatna goes on. And what Shatna keeps Shatna saying, a retreatant after practicing restraint of the senses for a while, might suddenly say, well, no, we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing. Our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, mental conduct and livelihood have been purified and we guard the doors of our sense faculties. That much is enough. And the Buddha gave the following comment. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis and lay retreatants, I inform you, I declare to you, you who seek the uh, status of uh, a retreatant, do not fall short of the goal of uh, recluseship while there's more to be done. So in other words, do not rest contented with this much, but certainly strive to go much further. Now, to illustrate the restraints of the senses and the benefit that might arise from this, allow me to quote a passage from the Visuddhi Magga. Namely, it's Satna first chapter, paragraph Satna 55. So the text or the passage says, It seems that as Satna, a particular elder by the name of Mahatissa, was on his uh, way from Chetia Pabata to Anuradhapura for arms round. And both of those places are places in where? In Sri Lanka, that's correct. And it so happened that a certain daughter-in-law of a clan who had just quarreled with her husband and had set out early from Anuradhapura 
all dressed up and tricked out like a, a, a celestial being to go to her relative's home. She saw you know, the bhikkhu on the road and being low-minded, she laughed a loud laugh, wondering, the, the bhikkhu, wondering, what is that? The elder looked up and finding in the bones of her teeth the perception of foulness. And with that, he reached arahanship. Hence, it was said, he saw the bones that were her teeth and kept in mind his very first stunning perception, and not more than that, and standing on that very spot, the elder became an arahant. But her husband, who was going after her, saw the elder and asked, Venerable sir, did you by any chance see a woman? And to this the elder replied, Whether it was man or woman, that went by, I noticed not. That went by, no sir, but only that on this high road there goes a group of bones. And that's all. <laughs> Pardon me? The first chapter, paragraph 55. So that's a very lively illustration of how, ideally, how to restrain our senses and certainly the ultimate benefits of that. Now, in the Mahasi tradition of Fatnavapasa meditation or Satipatthana meditation, the aspect of Fatna slowing down is really important and is being stressed over and over again. Now, as Satna retreatants may be coming from a different tradition, not being used to this, you might ask yourselves, what is the benefit of it? And what is there to be gained Satna, from this? Would you have any quick answers? Hmm? No benefits whatsoever. More closely, that's it, or and it enables you, you know, to you know, pay closer attention as you're doing things really slowly. You, know, you can observe much more carefully what is happening in comparison to doing things suddenly really quickly. Yes, that's great. So, for one thing, this. Uh, slowing down of all of our activities supports the intensity of our meditation practice. And I will speak about this in a little while. Slowing down also supports us or supports 
coming into the present moment. When we do you know, things quickly, 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 you know, then the mind is certain, oftentimes uh, ahead of what we're doing. Just recently, during a sharing circle uh, at the end of a retreat in Holland, one retreatant shared uh, uh, with everyone else uh, the following experience, namely, in the morning when getting up, he would certainly think about certainly getting dressed. When he was getting, putting on clothing, he would certainly think about certainly breakfast. When taking breakfast, he would certainly, uh, or his mind would already go ahead and certainly think about his certain right to work. When sitting in the car, then he would certainly think about work, and so on and so forth. This person, it seems, uh, prior to the retreat, had certainly very little chance to be in the present moment. And so, during the retreat, doing things, being encouraged to do things slowly, he really got to appreciate this form of conduct, namely of doing things really slowly, and so that helped him a lot. It also supports the development of our mindfulness, as Satna you have fatness in, it helps to, you know, the development of concentration and based on you know, these two factors, the development of intuitive wisdom. Now, from an experiential point of view, yogi point of view, when we come onto a retreat and we still bring all that restlessness from ordinary life with us onto the retreat, at first it will be very difficult to do things suddenly slowly. However, over time things change and we then gradually get to see the benefits of slowing down, and then quite naturally, the mind will want to slow down more and more. If you ask some advanced retreatants whether they prefer to do things quickly or slowly, they will clearly tell you they prefer to do to take their time and do things suddenly slowly. Now there are certain benefits that certainly can be derived from slowing down. One 
is that, so as mentioned already, that it allows for the arising of wisdom. So it, it allows us to deeply investigate an object, to come to know its certain nature, and certain that's nothing other than the arising of intuitive wisdom. Slowing down is a way or helps you know, to open up an entire microcosm of experiences that under normal circumstances we're not even aware of. Slowing down further helps us, or may help us, you know, to rectify you know, certain misperceptions. So, when we, to give you an example, when bending an arm, when we do this quickly, would you say it's one movement, one entire movement? Would you agree to that? Oh, you don't agree because you do things slowly. <laughs> no, so, no, when we do things quickly, we may think it's just one continuous certain movement, when in fact this is not the case and uh, in fact, uh, that what looks like one entire movement consists of tiny little segments, tiny smaller uh, movements uh, connected uh, one to or following one uh, after another. Now, slowing down also helps uh, to avoid certain. Unnecessarily making uh, mistakes, you know, such as in the dining hall dropping cutlery or dropping an entire plate full of food. Um, it might certainly also um, help you uh, not to drop your napkin during a meal, etc. Now, those of you who are familiar you know, with you know, the original meditation instructions as certainly given by the Venerable Mahasit Sayadon will be familiar with you know, the aspect of intensity of practice. The Venerable Mahasi did stress Satna this quite a bit, and Satna, one example or one illustration that he has given for this is long, long ago, thousands of Satna years ago, before the invention of Satna matches and Satna then the lighters. People had to start a fire by doing what? By rubbing. There you go. Rubbing two sticks certain together, and certain this rubbing then had to be done in a certain way. So if the person who is interested to 
not start a fire, were to rub for a little while, and then to stop and get lost in daydreaming, after a while realizing, oh, my, my job is actually to rub these two sticks together, then he or she continues to rub, and after a few uh, minutes, oh, this is getting too tiring, let me stop again. Well, in this way, will there ever be a fire? Probably not. So, the way to proceed, of course, is and continuous, incessant rubbing together of those sudden two sticks, which gradually will the friction will lead to the arising of heat and sooner or later this will cause a spark and from there then the fire comes to be. Now, there are many ways we can be subversive or in many ways of um, how do you say of fitness subverting one's own practice of subversiveness of one's own practice hmm? or undermining yes that's a better word there are various ways of undermining our own practice undermining the intensity of our own practice. Have you found any of those? <laughs> or are you a perfect yogi already? <laughs> yes, do you have any? No? Nothing comes to mind? There's plenty. Well, We bring a cell phone to the retreat, and after a good sitting session, we rush back to the room, close the door, and in the absence of other yogis, we then go towards our cell phone, switch it on, and check whether there are some uh, most recent uh, SMS message is uh, there or some email or phone call or this or that. Or we might uh, undermine you know, the intensity of our you know, practice by not taking the continuity of effort, of mindfulness, of fattening concentration seriously and allowing you know, there to be that larger you know, lapses that too you know, will weaken your overall intensity of fattening the practice. Extensively on retreat reading books or extensive writing 
or sleeping, socializing, talking to uh, others, all of those activities clearly will weaken the intensity of our practice. A certain degree of intensity needs to be there for one's meditation to move ahead, for our intuitive wisdom to mature more and more. So we do have to ask ourselves really seriously whether uh, we want to undermine, on, on the one hand side, um, superficially we try to uh, be a good yogi, but certainly then uh, in another, in other ways, you know, we undermine our practice, whether this is really what we want to you know, do or not. Now, experience certainly shows that uh, retreatants who are really committed to the practice, who understand you know, these certain fundamental uh, aspects, you know, do commit certain wholeheartedly and certain avoid anything you know, that is unrelated, any activity you know, that is unrelated to you know, the practice. And as a result, certain things move. The Venerable Sadhu Panditam Bhimamsa of Fatna Burma in this connection has on occasion given a nice Satna illustration for a jet Satna plane to fly from point A to point Satna B. Well, one requirement is that Satna, those Satna jet engines will be uh, running you know, non-stop. At times Satna may be a bit faster, at times a little bit Satna slower, but at least Satna they need to be running. And Satna, if uh, a pilot decides in mid-air to uh, switch off uh, the uh, jet engines, well, uh, that's uh, uh, the result of that. Satna could be a big uh, disaster. And so the same thing that could happen in our meditation practice. Now, the Buddha was very aware of a number of ways of undermining our own practice, and certainly he spoke of obstacles. And he said, and I'm quoting a passage from you know, the Anguttara Nikaya, a volume, no, what's that? A collection of sixes, discourse number 118. Without giving up six things, would it not be possible to abide contemplating the body as a body, contemplating feelings in feelings, contemplating the mind in the mind, and contemplating uh, uh, Dhamma? Dhammas in Dhammas, 
which are these six? To be fond of activity, gamma being uh, the first one. The second one, to be fond of talk, basa, in the Pali scriptural language. To be fond of sleep, nida, in the Pali scriptural language. And uh, furthermore, to be fond of company, sanganika, in the Pali scriptural language. Then, as number five, bonding or companionship, samsaga in Pali. In other words, satna, this is association contact. And uh, then, lack of uh, sense control and immoderate satna, eating. Actually, then first, uh, no, no, no I've, uh, I've added one here. So it's uh, fond of uh, activity or work, fond of uh, talking, of sleeping, of company, and then a lack of sense control and uh, immoderate eating. Those six uh, make up one, uh, one set. And the Buddha gives also uh, the opposite case. Now, the Venerable Sariputta enumerates six kinds of activity by delighting in which a retreat in spiritual progress is hindered. And the first couple, the first four, are exactly the same as Satnet mentioned, namely work, talk, sleep, and Satnet company. Then, as number five, we have bonding, and the last one is prolific uh, conceptualization or mental proliferation. Allowing the mind to go from one topic to another. Allowing the mind to roam about Satna freely, thinking about this or that. In regard to this mental proliferation, the Buddha has Satna the following uh, advice. He says, the fool who engages in and finds delight in prolific conceptualization is far removed from Nibbana, the incomparable freedom from bondage, and he or she who gives up prolific conceptualization and delights in the path to non-conceptualization attains to Nibbana, uh, the incomparable freedom from bondage. Maybe for uh, the sake of uh, clarity, what is meant uh, being fond of company, Sanganika? To put it differently, delight, taking delight in company. When The Dhamma has certain, the Buddha has stated elsewhere that uh, this Dhamma is certain for one who resorts to solitude and not certain to company. And that's uh, 
um, that solitude, this is what we are currently practicing. Now, during the first uh, couple of days of a new retreat, there are a couple of difficulties that retreatants tend to face. And those are sloth and torpor, those are wandering mind, pains and aches that come up, and certainly then difficulties to follow the schedule, and certainly based on these, a certain discouragement might certainly set in. Have you noticed any other difficulties? No? Is that it, more or less? If you have anything to add, please let me know. <laughs> self-doubt. Oh, self-doubt, yes, that's a good point, indeed. And so, yeah, so based on you know, difficulties, uh, now then one might suddenly start questioning one's own ability to do the practice, or one might even question you know, one's very decision you know, to um, sign up for you know, this retreat. Now, just mentioning these initial difficulties certainly uh, is not enough. So, what to do? What do you do you know, with regard to sloth and torpor? Several things. I'll just give a few aspects, not certainly everything. Try to boost certainly your mindfulness you know, so that you can see the sloth and torpor approaching. Also, you know, try to you know, boost uh, your effort and uh, you know, then um, the vendor side open it used to you know, recommend um, uh, aim the mind properly and certain you know, whatever predominant object comes along as certain you know, this has a tendency to open up you know, the sorry the shrunken mind or you know, else certain you, know, you could certainly you know, consider opening your eyes, keeping them open for a little while. You could certainly consider straightening your posture, doing standing meditation, or going outside and doing some brisk walking meditation. Now, in terms of the wandering mind, what do we do with this? We get lost in it. Yes, Venerable, you say yes. Uh, What's that? Say again. Observe. Oh, observe. Yeah, that's correct. So you know, we observe you know, the wandering mind. We label it. We observe it. We try to know its nature, and you know, then with pains and certain you know, aches, um, do we immediately change our sitting posture? Nope. 
So if we were to do this, then it would be the little amount of concentration that has developed so far, we might lose that. And so frequent changing one's certain posture every now and then in the face of pains is not recommended because if one changes it the posture once one is tempted to change it a second time a third time and so on with difficulties around certain the schedule and related to things, well, just trying to be as certain a patient as possible and certain flexible, and over time you'll get certain used to it. And the discouragement that I've mentioned earlier on would be just another object of observation to be mindful of. And certainly the self-doubt is also just another mental state, a mental object of observation. And certainly so we have to label it, observe it, and know its nature. Now, allow me to go a little bit certainly further. To give you just the very, very gist on attitudes, within or during the last couple of retreats that I taught in Europe, I've really noticed that when retreatants get the attitude right towards certain other practice, meditation unfolds quite naturally. And the retreat also, retreat as a whole, also unfolds in a very positive manner. Now, there are various ways various attitudes that we could possibly assume during a retreat. So one example, and this would be a negative example, is as a retreatant, one easily gets upset with a fellow retreatant. If a fellow retreatant moves just a little bit, makes the tiniest amount of noise already, the mind explodes and goes into a state of rage. Now, in this regard, the Buddha has the following advice to offer, uh, or the following advice. He says, as is uh, recorded in the Cheto Kila, the Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. It's the, uh, from volume 1, section 101. When one is irritable and unable to get along with one's fellow meditators, then one cannot bend one's mind for meditative striving. Because being on bad certain terms with a fellow retreatant or even several will 
take up a lot of your attention, take up a lot of your time, you'll be thinking about this uh, a lot, and it will take you away from the actual meditation practice. So this is not really a good attitude. Not beneficial in any way. Now, What do you think of Fatna doing when Satna retreat with a highly goal-oriented attitude? So on day two already you plan out your retreat. By day 10 you have to have the fourth insight knowledge attained. By the 20th day, you should have another insight knowledge attained. And then three days before the retreat ends, the piece of Nibbana should be yours. <laughs> Is that possible or not? Is that a wholesome attitude? Would you recommend this? Should I recommend this to you? <laughs> not at all. So this is clearly an unhelpful attitude that is certainly based in greed. And greed is what? A wholesome mental state or an unwholesome mental state? Uh, it's unwholesome. There you go. Or when a retreating comes to you know, the meditation hall, to find out that someone else has suddenly taken uh, his or her seat. And suddenly then you know, there's an inner dialogue. How come this fellow retreated dares to take my seat in the hall? So we've got this my attitude here. Is it helpful to practice with this my, my, my attitude? my path, my walking path, my seat in you know, the, the meditation hall. Nope. Again, another unhelpful attitude. And this time, an attitude you know, that is based in wrong view deity in the Pāṇitna scriptural language. Now, to shorten things a bit. Any kind of attitude with which we approach our retreat that is based in an unwholesome mental state will be unhelpful. So any attitude that is based in greed, that is based in wrong view, in pride, in conceit, in hatred, in delusion, in um, skeptical doubt, in wrong mindfulness, in laziness, or you know, worry, excessive effort, or you know, deficient effort, any such uh, uh, attitude uh, will not really be helpful uh, to uh, your uh, own practice. So on occasion, please do uh, check with which attitude uh, you 
you know, actually do you know, the practice. And so, if uh, an attitude based in, or any attitude you know, based in unwholesome you know, mental states doesn't work, what does work? Well, you know, very simple, any attitude that is certainly based in wholesome you know, mental qualities. And here we have quite a number, or, or we have a few you know, things that could be mentioned. So when we practice, as certain you know, the venerable Nesadu Pandita Bhivamsa of Burma frequently reminded the yogis, when we practice, we should do so with what? With care and who remembers? Care and respect. And maybe to put it in a slightly different language, we might want to practice with devotion. I know this is a term you know, that uh, is borrowed from uh, the other you know, religious uh, uh, traditions, you know, but in in the context of our mindfulness practice, it does uh, you know, fit quite nicely. So we're totally devoted you know, to being mindful of whatever you know, predominant object that comes along or whatever predominant activity we happen to you know, be involved in. So we give ourselves wholeheartedly you know, to the practice. Another way of putting this is we surrender you know, to the practice with all of our heart and mind. We practice with acceptance and uh, not mm, with a certain resistance. Now, to elaborate just a little bit on mm, practicing you know, with an attitude of resistance. So one does certainly do the practice, no doubt, but time and again you know, there uh, is uh, an underlying you know, resistance to you new know, things, underlying you know, you know, subtle resistance to the observation of pains and aches, an underlying resistance to you know, observing unskillful you know, mental states, an underlying resistance even you know, towards certain instructions you know, given you know, during interviews or uh, an, an underlying resistance towards uh, you know, Dhamma in general. And as long as that resistance is, is there, it's really, really difficult to, to practice. And the more you can let go of it, the better, and you will see, the more your practice will benefit from it. So we want to practice with an attitude of care and respect. 
we try to work towards ever greater purity of our physical, verbal, and mental conduct. We want to practice with an attitude that is based in non-greed and non-hatred, that is not certain deluded, non-conceited, not opinionated, and certain um, not skeptical, etc. To put things certain differently, we want to practice with a calm and certain detached mind, with an attitude of interest, taking interest and curiosity um, in what is happening from moment to moment, allowing things to unfold, being as objective and scientific, if you like to, as certain possible, practicing with a gentle attitude, being free of concepts, free of theories, etc. And having the highest um, appreciation possible for the uh, Dhamma itself, the depth of uh, the Dhamma. There will be on there will be phases in the meditation practice when things go really well and we are overjoyed about what's happening and there are also times when the practice is not going all that well pains and aches are there difficult mental states arise etc it's in it is uh, under these certain circumstances that we need as much patience as possible, acceptance and determination you know, to simply just keep going. And an up in or a high in in our practice will not last forever and a low in our practice will also not last forever. These things are very much impermanent. Now, this pretty much brings us to the end of today's discourse entitled Taking the First Few Steps. Allow me to conclude by wishing, may you internalize what has been said, may you apply it to your meditation practice, and may you benefit from it, and from an early point onwards, may you manage to make the necessary adjustments, slow down if necessary, restrain your senses a bit more if necessary, to maintain or keep up the intensity of the practice, and with this, may you your mentation mature more and more and your intuitive wisdom become increasingly, ever increasingly profound and eventually turn into liberating wisdom. And this is it for the talk.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.